0: She was a classic California beauty who was gruesomely murdered in a time before DNA was used to solve cases like hers. Despite more than 90 suspects being questioned, her death was still a cold case. This is the true crime story of Michelle Wyatt, the young woman whose murderer was discovered with genetic genealogy more than 40 years later. Hi friends, I'm Katie, and this is Katie Does Crime. Welcome to those of you just joining, and thank you all so much for your likes and comments. They really help my channel grow. If you're aware of genetic genealogy, it's likely because of the Golden State Killer case. It's a new way of using DNA to solve sometimes decades-old cold cases. Investigators can upload the DNA collected at crime scenes to websites where they can flush out large family trees and look for their suspect. When Michelle Wyatt's roommate came home on the afternoon of October 9, 1980, she could see that their ground floor apartment's lights were on and the curtains were still closed. Odd, since Michelle was an early bird. As the roommate approached their home, she saw the newspaper outside the door and the mail in the mailbox. Just a glimpse inside the apartment told her all she needed to know. She ran to a neighboring apartment and called the police. Someone nearby had heard a scream and Michelle's collies, Bambi and Shep, going wild in the night, but didn't report it. Sometimes dogs just do that. Michelle was the classic San Diego, California girl you see in movies. Born on February 9th, 1960, into a Navy family, she was blonde, pretty, with a love for the ocean that led her to take up scuba diving. She was in college, but torn about whether she wanted to be an oceanographer or do something in the film industry. She loved tap dancing, which seems so perfectly 80s to me. She supported herself with a job at a Safeway grocery store, but her real joy was in working with kids. She charged the ones in her neighborhood just a few dollars for dance and organ lessons. Michelle's mom said she was the kind of person who, even if she hated you, would treat you as a friend. If she felt she was about to faint, she'd make sure you were done with what you were saying before she passed out. Cute. Michelle loved her family, dad Raymond, mom Louise, and younger brother Ray J. But at the age of 20, she was ready to be a young woman out on her own. When her dad offered to let her and a roommate live in an investment condo he owned in nearby Santee, she jumped at the chance in January 1980. A short while later, while at her job at Safeway, she met a college boy named Patrick, who kept, you know, just accidentally stopping by the store while she was working, until he finally had the nerve to ask her out on one day in July. She told her lovingly prying mom that she'd finally found the guy who might be worth marrying. On Wednesday, October 8th, 1980, Michelle left the dance studio where she'd been taking tap dance lessons almost her whole life and met up with Patrick, whom she'd been dating for four months at that point. There was a billiards table in her garage that the two put to good use, Michelle beating him at all three games and mocking him in a joking way. They watched TV for a little while, and then he left at 1 a.m., As always, he told Michelle to lock the door behind him. It was the next afternoon that Michelle's roommate found her in her bathrobe, just inside the door. It didn't seem like anything had been taken, but Michelle's purse had been dumped out into the toilet. She'd been assaulted and strangled with a telephone cord. Everyone she knew was questioned, friends, family, coworkers, anyone who might be able to point to a suspect. Michelle's family even tried consulting a psychic and a Cherokee medicine man but the trail went cold, and a year after her death, none of the leads had remotely panned out. This was in 1980, and DNA evidence wasn't used in a criminal case until 1986. By October 1996, DNA testing had become so reliable that authorities actively reopened Michelle's case and interviewed almost 90 suspects. Some were asked for DNA samples because semen had been collected from Michelle. Even with this incredible evidence having been saved, and even with this huge suspect pool to draw from, there wasn't a hit. Five years later, with better technology, the DNA profile was entered into the CODIS database, or Combined DNA Index System. This is where agencies can capture DNA profiles and compare them to those of known criminals to help solve cases and identify serial killers who may be working across different states. But again, there was no hit. Michelle's killer wasn't a previous convict. And the case went cold for almost 20 more years. Every Sunday to Mount Hope Cemetery. Without fail, Margaret Louise Wyatt makes the trip to this plot just to say hello to Michelle. Honey, I love you. Those were the last words I said to her. You can feel the pain of a parent who outlived her child. My only daughter. The pain of not knowing why she died or who killed her 40 long years ago until a homicide detective got interested because it happened to occur in the same town where he grew up. He knew some of the people involved. And he felt like officers had done as much as they could have given the technology at the time, but now genetic genealogy had come along, DNA testing injected with a new kind of investigation. The DNA profile gets uploaded to a genealogy database, their relatives are discovered, and if all goes well, the killer is identified. And in August of 2021, that's exactly what happened in the case of Michelle Wyatt. Back in September 2020, the homicide detective working on the case sent the DNA sample from Michelle's murder to one of those commercial ancestry labs, like Ancestry.com. The work they do is different than the usual police crime lab investigation because it's about helping you find all the people you may be related to. The semen from Michelle's body was sent to a lab called Family Tree DNA, and then the results were uploaded to GEDmatch, a website that someone like you or I could use for comparing DNA. Once you upload your DNA profile, they have tools that can help you analyze and match your DNA to others in the database. The detectives working the case found a thousand people or more who were related to the suspect in Michelle's case. And they were unfortunately not closely related to the unknown person at all. Third cousins at most, not exactly the people you invite over for Thanksgiving dinner but the cold case team used the closest matches they had and started working on family trees for those people until they eventually landed on a second cousin. They were a little concerned that a second cousin might be close enough to the perpetrator to wanna protect him, but it was really the only thing they had at that point. They had to follow that lead. So they called her up and she agreed to submit her DNA to Ancestry. And when the results came back, there were these close relatives on her tree that had never appeared in any of their investigative genealogy before and then they realized the person they were looking for might be the offspring from an affair. They interviewed these new members of the family tree and found that people were generally cooperative. They'd heard about using genetic genealogy to solve the Golden State Killer case, and after all, if these people had put their DNA into a database like Ancestry's, they were already at least a little interested. Investigators got a half-sister from these new matches, and that led to the unknown suspect's dad, whom they figured must have a son no one knew about. The father had been a contractor who built movie sets, and through more testing and longer and longer trio of DNA, they found what they'd been looking for. The perp was the result of an affair on the set of How the West Was Won, the old West John Wayne movie that went on to win three Oscars. The alleged killer was John Patrick Pat Hogan, born in 1962. His father had moved on after the movie finished filming, and his mother raised him with another man. In the 70s, Hogan and his family moved into the same apartment complex where Michelle would later live. Relatives said he ran with a bad crowd, was into drugs, and got his high school girlfriend pregnant and had to marry her. He then joined the Air Force in 1979 and was stationed in New Mexico, but he was an 18-year-old on leave for nine days in San Diego that fateful night in October 1980 when he ran into Michelle Wyatt. Having once lived in her complex, John Patrick Hogan was still friends with a guy who lived across the way from Michelle and used to play pool with her in her garage. When investigators asked the neighbor about Hogan all of those decades later, he said, well, of all the people I know, that's the guy who could do something like that. But nobody ever asked about him. The cold case detectives think there's a possibility that Michelle recognized Hogan from the neighborhood that night and let him in because there was no sign of forced entry. Or maybe she thought it was her boyfriend coming right back for something. Or maybe, as Michelle's boyfriend later worried, they never locked the sliding glass door from the patio that night when they came in from playing pool. That has to still haunt him. After taking Michelle's life, Hogan returned to his home in New Mexico, later divorced the high school sweetheart he'd impregnated, married again, had another baby, and then died at the age of 42 from a meth overdose on October 9th, 2004 exactly 24 years after he killed Michelle Wyatt to the day. The guilt must have been too much to live with. When he died, his DNA was collected as part of the autopsy, and the cold case detectives were able to match it to DNA left in Michelle's body. What's interesting is that apparently all of his relatives were like, yep, sounds about right. But his first wife, the high school sweetheart, refuses to believe it. She thinks Michelle probably hooked up with him because she wanted to, You know, right after her boyfriend left. And then he left and someone else came in and killed her. Sure, sure, sure. Michelle's mother says that because Hogan killed himself, she'll never get the closure she wants. She wanted to be the one to go after him. But she says she wishes there was something she could do for the men who ultimately solved her daughter's murder. She says, a hug and a thank you doesn't seem like enough. She travels to Michelle's grave in Mount Hope Cemetery in San Diego every Sunday just to say hello. Michelle's parents are now in their 80s. That was my biggest scare of dying and not finding out who did it, you know, that this guy's not out there anymore. But I'd still like to get him. Not everyone thinks that the use of Ancestry websites is moral when it comes to catching criminals. The idea that a relative could give away your DNA sequencing without your knowledge by uploading their own is a little scary if you don't trust the police or the government with your personal information but you have to admit that it's pretty satisfying to see a cold case solved like this 40 years after the fact. Old-timey serial killers, beware. What do you think? Would you submit your DNA to a website knowing that it might be used against someone in the future? Is it worth giving up a little privacy to solve crimes? Thank you for tuning into my podcast episode. I'm just a true crime fan like you are, and I really appreciate you taking a chance on me. Please subscribe and tell a friend if you like spending this time together. You can also find me on YouTube in the flesh by searching Katie Does Crime.